Chapter 17, Section 1 of J. B. Bury's The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Student's Roman Empire, Part 1 by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter 17 The Principate of Nero, 54 to 68 AD. Section 1 the ascendancy of Seneca and Burrus. The new princeps belonged to the house of the Brazen Beards, one of the most illustrious families of the Domitian gens. His father, Gnaeus Domitius Ahenobarbus, a man infamous for his vices and crimes, is reported to have said on his child's birth that the offspring of such a father as himself and such a mother as Agrippina must turn out ill-omened and disastrous to the state. The child lost his father at the age of three, and was despoiled of his inheritance by the emperor Gaius. His mother was in banishment, and his training devolved for a time upon his aunt Domitia Lepida. The ascension of Claudius restored to him both his mother and his possessions, and under the eye of Agrippina he was brought up with a view to future greatness. It has been already mentioned that she recalled the philosopher Seneca from exile, and entrusted to him the education of her son. This remarkable man, who played an important part in the administration of the Roman world during the early half of Nero's reign, professed to be a Stoic, superior to the ordinary desires and ambitions of mankind. But he amassed an immense fortune, and did not disdain the arts of a courtier. He was not a politician who amuses himself with philosophy, nor yet a pure philosopher who steps out of his sphere to give advice in politics. On the contrary, his theory was that philosophy should be applied to government, and that thought should be combined with action. He may not have adhered over-strictly to all his precepts of morality, but there can be no doubt that whatever were his faults, he rose, quote, far above the ordinary pedagogues of his day, the cringing slave or the flattering freedman to whom the young patricians were, for the most part, consigned. Doubtless it was Seneca's principle of education to allure, possibly to coax, rather than drive his pupil into virtue. He yielded on many points in order to borrow influence on others. He deigned to purchase the youth's attention to severe studies by indulging his inclination to some less worthy amusements. The young prince was surrounded by the temptations which beset the patrician youth of Rome, and accustomed to the indulgences which tend to relax the vigor of mind and body. His favorite studies were artistic, especially music and singing. In oratory he was not thought to be proficient. It was a matter of remark that he required the help of Seneca to compose the funeral oration of his uncle. The succession of Nero to the Principate was readily acquiesced in by the people, the soldiers, and the Senate. Yet there was a feeling that Britannicus, as the real son of Claudius, had a better claim than the adopted Domitius. It is significant that the will of Claudius was not read, but was silently passed over. No one, however, felt called upon to undertake the cause of Britannicus. This may have been partly due to the fact that the infidelity of his mother had cast a slur on his birth. The senators may have even preferred an emperor whose claim was doubtful, in the hope that they might exert more influence in the administration, if he felt dependent on their good will. It must be remembered that, from a strictly constitutional point of view, Britannicus had no more claim to the Principate than Nero, and Nero, through his mother, 
was descended in direct line from Augustus. The first speech of the new emperor in the Senate, dictated doubtless by Seneca, produced a favorable impression. He promised not to interfere with the Senate in the exercise of any of its functions, but to confine his activity to the armies. The senators lost no time in repealing a law of Claudius, by which lawyers were allowed to accept rewards for pleading causes, and in exempting questors from the burden of exhibiting gladiatorial shows, which the same emperor had laid upon them. The early years of Nero's rule were marked by a struggle for power between his mother and his two chief advisers, Seneca and Burrus. Agrippina had staked everything for power, and she did not intend to surrender the reins on her son's accession. It was not enough for her that Nero should rule, she desired to rule herself, and Nero was devoted to her. His first watchword was the best of mothers, and during the first months she behaved as the regent of the empire. On coins her head appeared along with that of the princeps, and she took upon herself to receive the ambassadors of foreign states. She hastened to remove from her path two enemies, the freedmen Narcissus and M. Silanus, proconsul of Asia. She feared the vengeance of the latter for the death of his brother Lucius, whom she had destroyed as a possible rival of her son. Nero, who cared only to enjoy the pleasures of his position, and not to fulfill its duties, had himself little objection to his mother's political activity, but Burrus and Seneca were resolved not to concede the assumption of such power to a woman, especially as it seemed likely to be cruelly and unscrupulously exercised. In order to counteract her influence, they encouraged Nero in an intrigue with a Greek freedwoman named Acte. Agrippina was incensed, and her violent language drove the emperor to attach himself more closely to the indulgent Seneca. She then changed her policy, and attempted to bid against the philosopher by still greater indulgence, but the eyes of her son had been opened to her overbearing ambition. The first decisive triumph of the rivals of Agrippina was the disgrace of the freedman Pallas, with whom she had closely leagued herself, and on whose political experience she leaned. Nero, who had never liked him, and would not submit to his counsels, deprived him of his office, and dismissed him from the court, before February 13, A.D. 55. This was felt as a serious blow by Agrippina, and she made a desperate move to recover her power by espousing the cause of her stepson, Britannicus. She declared that he was the true heir of Claudius. She threatened to rush with him to the camp, and asked the soldiers to judge between the daughter of Germanicus and Burrus and Seneca. Whatever were her own crimes, she said, she had at least preserved the life of Britannicus. This action on her part proved fatal to the unlucky son of Claudius. Nero saw that his own seat was not secure as long as Britannicus lived, and he determined to remove him. The services of Locusta, which Agrippina had employed to hasten the death of Claudius, were now employed by her son to kill Britannicus. A warm wine-cup was presented to the boy at table, and when he found it too hot, cold water was added, into which a drop of deadly poison had been poured. He died instantaneously, to the alarm of all those who were present, and the unaffected consternation of Agrippina. The body was burnt the same night in the campus, in the midst of a great storm, which was interpreted as a sign of divine wrath. It is impossible to know whether Seneca was privy to this deed, or whether it was solely due to the calculation of Nero. It is clear that the death of Britannicus was a decisive check to the plans of Agrippina, 
and the question is whether Seneca would have been ready to go to the length of poisoning in order to foil her and preserve his own position. But there is no evidence to prove him guilty, and therefore we must suppose him innocent. The death of Britannicus was represented as natural, and Nero professed to lament the loss of a dear brother. He had no curious inquiries to fear from the Senate, for the Senate was content with the Emperor's policy, guided as it was by Seneca, and as long as the Senate was content, fratricide and other crimes might be committed in the palace without interference. Popularity with the Senate was indeed the keynote of Seneca's policy. The Emperor refused statues of gold and silver. He declined the honor of letting the year begin with his birth-month, December. He dismissed the charge of a delator against a knight and a senator. Such acts were counted to him for righteousness. Agrippina had lost her influence with Nero, and when, after the death of Britannicus, she posed as the protectress of Octavia, her son's wife, whom he treated with contemptuous neglect, and attempted to form a party of her own, he became alarmed. He caused the guard which had hitherto attended her to be removed, and forced her to leave the palace, and take up her residence in the house which formerly belonged to her grandmother Antonia. At these signs of disfavor her friends fell away, and Junia Solana, who had a private grudge against her, attempted to work her ruin by a false charge of conspiracy. Two suborned informers stated that she had plotted to overthrow her son, and replace him by rebellious Plautius, who was as nearly related to Augustus as Nero himself. But on examination the charges fell through, and Solana was banished. During the next three years Agrippina vanishes from the pages of history. Though her influence was gone, there seems to have been no open rupture. While Seneca and Burrus administered the affairs of the empire, and an unwanted activity was permitted to the senate, the emperor occupied his time in the licentious amusements of youth. Adopting a favorite pastime of profligate young nobles, he used to wander through the streets at night, disguised in the garb of a slave to conceal his person, and visit taverns and low haunts. He and his comrades used to seize goods exposed for sale, and assail those whom they encountered in their progress. The emperor himself bore on his face the marks of wounds received in these brawls. When it became known that Nero was in the habit of masquerading thus, and many men and women of distinction had been insulted in his nocturnal escapades, others assumed his name and followed his example, so that the city was infested by gangs like the Mohawks, who had in the last century used to make London dangerous at night. On one occasion a man of centurion rank, named Julius Montanus, happened to meet Nero in the darkness. He first repelled his assailant vigorously, but afterwards recognized him and sent in a petition for pardon. Nero, angry at being recognized, asked, Has he not, then, already dispatched himself, seeing that he struck Nero? And Montanus was obliged to destroy himself but after this occurrence the emperor was more cautious, and on such expeditions was always attended by a guard of soldiers and gladiators to interfere if necessary. The two most intimate companions of Nero were two profligate men of fashion, Salvius Otho and Claudius Senecio. In 58 AD, his intimacy with Otho led to an entanglement with Otho's wife, Popeia Sabina. She had been divorced from a former husband to marry Otho, and she regarded her second husband as merely a stepping-stone to a still higher alliance. She had determined to win the hand of Nero himself. The historian Tacitus, 
has described with great art her coquetry, her fascinations, her audacity, and her wickedness. Quote, she had all things except a high mind, end quote. In her, Agrippina had indeed found a match. The emperor succumbed to her charms, and got rid of Otho by appointing him governor of Lusitania. In order to marry Nero, it was necessary for Papeia to procure the divorce of Octavia, but she saw clearly that the chief obstacle to her plans was Agrippina, who had always striven to maintain the nominal union of her son and her stepdaughter. So Papeia set herself to bring about a rupture between the emperor and his mother. She had friends and supporters in Seneca and Burrus, the opponents of Agrippina, and she had made up her mind to step over the corpses of the two empresses into the palace of the Caesars. The daughter of Germanicus still possessed considerable influence with the Praetorians, and it would have been dangerous to resort to public measures against her. But Nero, led on by the persuasions of his mistress Papeia, did not shrink from contriving a scheme for her assassination. His old tutor Anicetus, whom he had raised to be captain of the fleet of Misenum, undertook to construct a vessel which could be sunk without exciting suspicion, and if it could be managed that Agrippina should embark in it, her destruction would be imputed by the world to the winds and waves. At the Quinquartus, a festival of Minerva lasting five days in the month of March, Nero invited his mother to his villa near Baiae. She landed at Bauli, between Baiae and Cape Misenum, and completed her journey in a litter, but after the banquet, when night had fallen, she was induced to return to Bali in the vessel which had been prepared for her destruction. But the mechanism did not do its work with the expected success, and Agrippina succeeded in swimming to shore, whence she proceeded to her villa on the Lucrine Lake. One of her maids, Aceronia, who in order to save her own life called out, I am the Empress, was struck with oars and drowned. Agrippina saw through the treachery which she had so narrowly escaped, but pretended to regard it as an accident, and sent her freedman Acarinus to bear to Nero the news of her fortunate escape. Nero, who had been waiting in agitation to learn that his mother was no more, was terror-stricken at the tidings that the plan had miscarried. He applied for help in his difficulty to Burrus and Seneca, who, however, seemed to have had no part in the plot. But Anicetus undertook to finish the work. It was pretended that a dagger was found in the possession of Agerinus, the freedman of Agrippina, and that she had conspired against the emperor's life. Anicetus, accompanied by a captain and a military tribune, hastened to the Lucrine villa. They found her lying on a couch with a single attendant, all the others having deserted her at the approach of the assassins, and at their appearance the last slave fled. She was dispatched with many wounds, crying, Strike the womb which bore Nero. She was buried by slaves, and Menester, a faithful freedman, slew himself on her pyre, 59 A.D. If the matricide felt stings of remorse, they were speedily alleviated by the congratulations, which poured in on him from every side, on having escaped the plots of his mother. He wrote a letter to the Senate, explaining the circumstances of her death, and there is no reason to suppose that this false account, embellished by the art of Seneca, and confirmed by the testimony of Burrus, was not generally believed. This is an instance of the way in which the Senate served the princeps as a means of reaching the public ear. The true story was probably known only to a few initiated persons, and there was nothing improbable in a woman who had killed her husband planning to kill her son. 
Otherwise, the great sympathy which was expressed for Nero is unintelligible. The Senate decreed that thanksgivings should be offered for the emperor's safety, and that golden statues of Minerva and the emperor should be erected in the Senate House. The Quinquartress were henceforward to be celebrated by public games, and Agrippina's birthday to be regarded as a day of ill omen. All those persons who had been sent into exile owing to her influence were permitted to return. Nero's entry into Rome was like a triumph. He ascended to the capital and offered thanks to the gods for his preservation. End of chapter 17, section 1